0: Our study has been in Mark's gospel for uh, several months now, and Mark is showing us Jesus as the Son of God who came into this world to save his people from their sin. And uh, we've been following uh, as Mark shows us Jesus' miracles and teaching, and uh, as Jesus has traveled throughout the land. And let me just point out on this map here some of the travel of Jesus. Uh, in a general form that Mark has, has depicted for us. Uh, basically, in the first eight chapters of Mark, uh, Jesus has traveled, been traveling northward, uh, mostly around Galilee. That's the area around the Sea of Galilee, there in the center of the screen. And, and uh, Jesus has been doing miracles and teaching all throughout this area, uh, traveling northward, And then the farthest north that Jesus gets in those first uh, eight to nine chapters is the top of Mount Hermon. And I've marked that with the star at the top of the screen. And that's where we were last week. That's the incident of uh, the transfiguration when Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John on the mountaintop. An incredible event. And that's the farthest Jesus goes north. Uh, And um, from the moment that Jesus walks down that mountain... He is headed southward. He's going toward Jerusalem. Now a lot of things are going to happen. That's the second half of the, 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 the Gospel of Mark. But, but he's headed to Jerusalem from the moment he leaves that mountain toward his, his betrayal, his arrest, and his execution. And Jesus knows this. This is why he came. Uh, and He's on the way toward fulfilling his mission to give his life for the sin of the world. And... Uh, That is where we pick up the story. Jesus is on the way with his disciples going back through Galilee when he says this. Verse 31 of Matthew 9. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, uh, my apologies, but I'm going to quote comedian Jim Gaffigan right now. In order to make, I think, an important point about Jesus, Uh, Gaffigan asks, ever wonder what people got Jesus for Christmas? Now, of course, the premise of that joke itself is ridiculous, and Gaffigan knows that because there was no Christmas celebration at that point in history. But Gaffigan wants you to imagine Jesus opening a Christmas present and saying, oh great, socks! Socks! You know I'm dying for your sins, right? Yeah, but thanks for the socks. They'll look great with my sandals. Now, a little ridiculous, but I think it is on point that whatever gift you might give Jesus pales in comparison to the cross. Um and if you were thinking about his sacrifice, surely you would give him the best that you could possibly give. Surely you would live for him in the best possible way that you could live. Now, this is the second time Jesus plainly told his disciples about his death and resurrection, and they still don't get it. And because they don't get it, they do and say some knuckle-headed things. Actually, a lot of times. But here, particularly... And so let me point this out to you. And if you do not evaluate your choices in light of Jesus' death and resurrection, you will come to wrong conclusions. Unless the reality of the cross is on your mind, you will say things, you will react to things, you will do things that do not mesh with the truth of God. So immediately after telling his disciples about his death and resurrection again, Jesus' disciples mess up in three different ways. Three different times. They make three misjudgments. That's what I want to point out to you today. The three misjudgments that the disciples make because they're the same kinds of misjudgments you and I can make and probably do make all too often. So I'm going to form them in the the way of question. And the first question is, how do you evaluate greatness? How do you evaluate greatness? So we have Jesus... And his 12 disciples, they've been walking, and they finally arrive at the house in Capernaum. The house, it's a specific house, one they've used before, the one they know the owner of. Some scholars say it's Peter's house. I don't know whose house, but it's a house they know. And there, when they're alone in the house, Jesus asks his disciples a question. Verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So Jesus had just finished telling them he was on the way to his execution, and they're debating about who's number one, personal greatness. They're just, uh, by, the, by the way, the word discussing can be translated arguing or disputing. It's a word that involves reasoning. So in other words, each of the disciples had some reason, some excuse, some explanation why, why he should be first disciple. And it might have been prompted by the fact that Jesus had just taken Peter, James, and John only with him up to the mountaintop to see his glory, and it was an incredible event. And maybe the others were jealous of that. Whatever the reason, they're arguing about who's number one. Jesus is sacrificing himself, and that's they're they're troubled about their own ranking. They're ambitious for power and for prestige. And so, taking that, Jesus redefines what it means to be great in the sight of God. And, verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. So Jesus explains that God's values are far different than our world's values. The opposite, in fact. The world's concept is to grab for power, to come in first, to be served by others. The great philosopher Plato said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That's the world's value. Jesus said the opposite is true. Rather than be obsessed with yourself, you need to serve others. You need to give of yourself to others. That's the reality. Further explaining, verse 36 He took a little child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Now, in this context, Jesus is not calling us to be like little children. That's not his point. He is using this little boy to illustrate basically insignificance. This child is an example of the small the powerless, somebody who has nothing to profit you. He has no position, power, wealth, to profit you. And to care for such a person is to care for Jesus and ultimately God the Father. See, God's kingdom is not led by the important, the connected, the wealthy, the powerful. That's what the disciples are fighting over. Not led by the famous. It's led by those who serve. And so that answer to the first question of how do you evaluate greatness is to treat the least significant people like Jesus. Treat the least significant like Jesus. Whatever is done to the littlest and to the least, the disenfranchised and the neediest is done to Jesus. And, and I would say that's a, one great reason why we place a high value on ministering to children here at Cypress Bible Church. We're, we're always looking for willing and qualified people to serve in early childhood, and elementary areas, and special K, and in student ministry. Not only because it's critical for those children and families, but it's a way for you to become more like Jesus. It's a way to actually serve and become more like Christ, because you're serving those who, in effect, have nothing to offer you in return. And to grasp what Jesus is saying, we need to reorient our minds because we're too proud, we're too self-focused, we're too power-hungry, we're too anxious to impress or driven to succeed or wanting to be served. And and see, what will make a, a great difference in your marriage is if you are willing to serve your spouse without expecting anything in return. Or your church family, your small group, to serve others without expecting anything in return. Henri Nouwen was a psychologist, theologian, author of many books. He was a professor at Notre Dame, and then Yale, and then Harvard. And he left that life of academic, academic prestige all of a sudden. He stopped teaching the elite in society and moved instead to Daybreak, a home for severely disabled people. Uh, It was located in Toronto, and he moved there about two years after we had moved to Toronto, and so I was aware of that transition, amazed by it. And there, uh, Henri was assigned to care for one person. Adam was in his 20s, but he had the needs of a newborn child. He was the most disabled person at daybreak. And and Nouwen said this, it takes me about an hour and a half to wake Adam up. Giving him his medication, carry him to his bath, wash him, shave him, clean his teeth, dress him, walk him to the kitchen. He does not cry or laugh. His back is distorted. His arm and leg movements are twisted. He suffers from severe epilepsy, has seizures almost every day. On a few occasions, I've seen one big tear roll down his cheek. So here we have this one-time Ivy League professor who is now caring for Adam 24 hours a day. And through this, he learned to love Adam, and he learned, he said, what it must be like for God to love us. Now, the way that God looks at things, caring for Adam was a far greater accomplishment than all the books that Henri Nouwen wrote. That's the way God looks at things. So how do you evaluate greatness? You treat the least significant people like Jesus. Second question. How do you evaluate competition? Now, I'm not speaking of sports competition. I think you'll understand what I mean when we read the text here. But how do you evaluate competition from God's point of view? Here's the text, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, John was speaking for all the disciples. They were all involved in trying to stop this guy. See, they were bothered by this unauthorized miracle worker. So we have some unidentified man who was doing exactly what the disciples could not do themselves, just the previous few verses, right? They were presented with a demon-possessed boy. They could not heal him. Why? Because they didn't pray. And so they see this guy who's doing what they could not do. He was getting rid of evil spirits, and he was doing it not through magic, not through some false god, not through medicine or psychology or hypnosis. He's doing it in Jesus' name. This guy used the authority of Jesus in faith believing and the disciples tried to stop him. The word for stop is kaluo, the Greek word, and and it means to forbid, to prevent, to get in the way of. So they're all out there trying to stop him. And why are they trying to stop him? Because he's not following us. They don't say because he's not following you, Jesus. But he's not one of our crew our group. That's so laughable. They're so self-important. Uh, th- this man is doing great things in Jesus' name, but he's not part of their group. Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. So Jesus makes it clear that this man is not the opposition. The fact that he defeated demons in Jesus' name proves they're on the same side. The disciples' perspective of God's kingdom is too narrow. Jesus saw any good work done in his name having God's approval. And so Jesus warns against narrow exclusivism among those who follow him. Now understand the good news itself is very exclusive. Jesus made that clear time and again. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. There's not two ways. There's not five ways. There's not, no, he's the only way. But all who put their trust in Jesus through his death and resurrection, th- we're all on the same team. Now Denominations are going to have differences of opinion on certain practices and theological points. But whenever Christ is preached, we should rejoice. Uh, When the Apostle Paul learned that there were people out there preaching the good news to get him in trouble, he said, I'm happy about that. Uh, Philippians 1.18, he said, it doesn't matter uh, why they're preaching the message of Jesus. I'm just glad that they're preaching the message of Jesus. So don't discount the faith of those outside your circle who follow Jesus. Don't write off entire denominations or church groups, who present the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as the way to life, as the means to the Father. Don't do it. Let me put it in these terms. How do you evaluate competition? Bless all who minister in Jesus' name. I was uh, reminiscing about some things with my brother this week, and uh, he's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. And I was recalling when uh, uh, he was, I think, in officer training school, uh, he had an apartment he shared with another officer candidate on the beach in North Carolina. And so Amy and I went to visit him. We spent some of vacation and went to visit him. And so we spent days on the beach while he was at the base doing whatever they do at the base. Had a great time. But uh, knowing that I was coming, my brother was attending this, this uh, church on the beach, actually, um, and uh, was... Uh, a rather small church, and he, Noah was coming. He said, I, I want you to preach at my church. And I said, Well, it's my vacation. I don't like it. No, no, I really, really want you to preach. I said, Oh, okay. Well, if that's that's what you want. So he asked the pastor, Hey, my brother's coming. He's a pastor. He's very solid and great. I, uh, I would like him to preach that one Sunday here. And the pastor said, No, can't do it. He's not part of our group, he's not part of our denomination. My brother said, No, oh, I know what, what he believes. I know he's solid. He fits in great. No, no. Can't allow that. I was actually relieved. But it made my brother very angry. He thought, how narrow-minded are these people? Not part of that group, so they won't let me preach. Uh, I counted up that over the course of the time that I've been here, I have met with nearly 200 pastors in the Houston area. Uh, And that's very intentional, both going to pastor's meetings and one-on-one coffee, lunch, breakfast with another pastor. Some of them far outside the other side of Houston or out in farther suburbs and many local here. And just to to name a handful of them, uh, Jesse McMillan, a great guy, church at Cross Lake. Uh, We we established a relationship uh, late last year. And uh, in fact, they had our pastoral staff there on their campus for a retreat just a couple of weeks ago. Or Blake Wilson, the pastor at Crossover Bible. He and several of his staff had lunch with me and several of our staff just uh, before Christmas. David Bond at St. John Lutheran. He's a good man. We have a lot in common. I've enjoyed spending time with David, and I wish I could spend more time with him. Stuart Sanders at Tomball Bible, we had lunch a f- few weeks ago, and Jeron Jones at Shine Bible, and Mark Shook at Community of Faith, and I could list many names uh, of guys. I'd say, these are, these are good men who preach Jesus. We might have some differences of opinion on certain things, but, but they, they preach Jesus. And I've, I would say there were a few out of all those couple hundred I met who were standoffish who didn't want to get to know me or connect with us in any way and there was one who absolutely refused to spend any time with me at all so I don't know who you all told what you said about me to him but but the point that Jesus wants his disciples to understand is that the church is bigger than just us that God's kingdom is bigger than our little group Bigger than our experience of it. So don't limit him. How do you evaluate competition? Bless all who minister in Jesus' name. Third question. How do you evaluate sin? How do you evaluate sin? So Jesus goes on to talk about the seriousness of sin. How your sin impacts other people. How your sin should seriously be evaluated by you. How your own personal sin should be evaluated by you yourself. Notice some very hard words in this portion. Verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Now what little ones is he talking about? Well, certainly children could be considered in that scenario, but the, but the, the, the reference is to those who are young in their faith, who are, who are believing in Jesus but are, haven't grown much, are, are, are tender, who are new converts. And so certainly that involves children who trust in jesus but anyone who is young in faith and so this is a warning against discouraging the faith of someone who is not yet spiritually mature or derail, derailing the faith of someone who is just starting to follow jesus and he says that's deadly business it's so bad you might as well be dead and, and jesus graphically pictures how The millstone was a large grinding stone. It had a hole in the middle. That that was a post that would go through that hole and the post would be attached to a donkey and the donkey would turn that grinding wheel. It was a massive stone wheel. And Jesus said, it would be better for you to shove your head in the hole of that millstone, wear it like an enormous collar, and throw yourself into the ocean than to derail the faith of someone who is young and immature in the faith. Let that warning cause you and me to evaluate how you treat those who are young in the faith. Uh, we don't have to think very hard to realize how many children have been sexually abused by pastors and by priests and church workers and, and that has to scar their view of Jesus. Can wreck their faith. By God's grace it doesn't wreck all their faith, but how devastating that is. It causes them to sin. We, that, that's why we take so many precautions as a church to, to make this a safe place for children and students and the vulnerable. In fact, we're so careful that some people think we're too careful. But that's why it's, it's critical. And how careful you and I should be not to be bad examples to others. A bad example... Uh, being hypocritical. You act one way at church and another way at home. If your family sees you entirely differently than you actually try to project yourself, that, that's, that's so damaging of your family's view of Jesus. Or if you put man-made rules on others and distort the good news with your human rules, that's damaging to others. There, there was a, a young couple that I led to Christ years ago who uh, they, uh, they were so excited about their new faith in Jesus and and um, just beginning to raise a, a young family. And they knew one of them had a co-worker, I believe, who they knew was really religious. That's all they knew. This person is really religious. So they rushed the next opportunity they had, they, they rushed to tell this co-worker, religious co-worker, that they had just put their trust in Jesus. And their co-worker's response was, listen, unless you, pointing to the woman, wear a dress that covers your ankles and wear a hat, And unless you, pointing to the husband, stop smoking, you're both going to hell. They were very confused. Because what they'd heard of the gospel was that Jesus has paid it all. And there's nothing I can do, wearing, doing whatever, to earn what God has done freely for me in Christ. And so they were confused, and I had some time to try and correct that and straighten that out. Thanks be to God. But the consequences of leading someone astray are horrific. That's what Jesus says. Beware how your sin affects others. And then Jesus says, you better be serious about how sin affects you, too. Verse 43, following. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Well, welcome to church. Please hear me say, this is not Jesus literally calling us to maim ourselves. He's telling us to evaluate our temptations. Evaluate our sin in light of eternal consequences. Because wouldn't you rather lose a lung than lose a life? hacking off body parts here is a metaphor it's a metaphor please hear me say it. it's a metaphor one scholar says Jesus is demanding radical spiritual surgery and he talks about the eyes and the hands and the feet because they represent what we view what we do where we go and if you're gonna follow Jesus some sacrifice is involved uh, I had the privilege in 2011 of meeting uh, an Iranian man who was interested in knowing Jesus. He had been brought up here in the the U.S. and uh, he was Muslim by by faith, but he was very interested in Jesus. And so we got to meet together every week for uh, many months. And as he began to learn more of Jesus, he realized that a decision needed to be made. And he told me that what was troubling him was if he made this decision, he was sure that he would lose his family that his mother and father would reject him, that his sister would reject him, and they would no more have a relationship. But as time went on, he realized that Jesus was worth that cost. And in Christmas 2011, he made a decision to follow Jesus. He realized that the cost was worth it. The sacrifice. Uh, Sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, a Christian leader that uh, I met with who left his wife and his children and his ministry for another woman. And basically he directly, this is a direct quote from him about the other woman, I can't give her up. She's like a drug I crave. And so he was not willing to perform spiritual surgery and it was costly. I've heard that same response about pornography and about many, many other things. But Jesus calls us to evaluate our sin, realizing that God's kingdom is more valuable than anything, even parts of our own selves. But you can only make that kind of observation when you you, uh, do so in the light of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, let me point out to you three times. I don't have uh, it all written here, but in the, the text, Jesus three times mentions hell. The Greek word is Gehenna. And this refers to a place in the Hinnom Valley located just south of Jerusalem. At ancient times, it was a place where human sacrifices were made to the false god, Moloch. And later, godly kings in Israel came along and they uh, turned Gehenna into a place to empty your, empty your toilet and to take your garbage and set it on fire and to dispose of dead animals. So it was a place that was constantly smoldering and burning. And that place became symbolic of eternal punishment. And, and that's the word Jesus uses and refers to hell. He says, verse 48, hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a place of horror. The, the, the fire of asbeston is the word for extinguished here, or quenched. It's a fire that doesn't go out. And Jesus presents this image of maggots and decay and eternal fire as a valid depiction of hell. And the point of all this is that the kingdom of God is so important that you should not let anything in this life prevent you from it. And the choice is between God's everlasting kingdom and the fire that never goes out. Now, the last two verses are very difficult, and I won't take the time to explain all the possibilities. But Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, basically, this is a call to Christ followers to have lives that back up what they say they believe. Allow God to burn away your impurities through the fires of affliction and trial. Perform spiritual surgery on yourself to get rid of these things that, that keep you from becoming more like Jesus. God has called you to be the salt of the earth. Be his preservative for the good, for the flavor to your world in Jesus' name. Don't become unbelieving and worldly again. Lose your saltiness and you're no longer useful. This is not about trying to earn or deserve your salvation, not at all. That that is free, simply by accepting the free gift of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus came to die, to pay the price of sin for all who believe, and by faith in the crucified and risen Jesus, I have new life and I am a child of God. And when that's true, God calls me to live as his agent in this world. And the call here is to keep on in that and not become tasteless, valueless in my identity as a Christian. So Jesus is calling you to stay radically committed to him with your eyes and your hands and your feet, with your whole body. Otherwise, the world around you rots and reeks and decays and dies and you aren't the preservative that you need to be. So maybe there's an illicit relationship that needs to be amputated today. Maybe there's a secret sin that needs to be cut off. Maybe there's a sin that's not so secret that you need to deal with. Maybe there's a commitment to money or to friends or to sports that needs to be abandoned. Maybe there's a grudge you're holding on to that needs to be erased. So how do you evaluate sin? Compare it to the awesome cost of the blood of Jesus. That's how you look at sin. Now last Sunday, along with millions of other people, we remembered the sanctity of human life. That life begins at conception... And it's precious that every stage is driven by what God has revealed about himself to us. Now, Johnny Erickson Tata, who's quadriplegic, teamed up with Nick Vujicic, who uh, was born without arms and legs, and they did a Facebook Live uh, together last week, affirming that life is sacred from conception to death. Now, I did not see it because I don't have Facebook, but uh, I read, those are words that you see on a page, I read about what they said. Joni talked about how today, it's not just the unborn who aren't valued, it's the elderly, those with catastrophic disabilities, people suffering from psychiatric disorders. She said there's a mentality today that people are better off dead than disabled. But abilities don't determine our value. She said the value of life is not connected to whether or not we can walk or whether you've got arms or whether or not my hands work. It's anchored in the fact that God made us. And she said... When you talk about your worth, it's all directly connected with the price that was paid for us, the precious blood of Christ. Now just like the disciples, if you don't evaluate life in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, you're going to come to wrong conclusions. Whether it's about your greatness or the worth of those around you or your own sin, evaluate it all by the precious blood of Jesus. And if you're like me, there are things that you need to repent of today and every day and deal with before God. Attractions that you've made more important than Jesus. People you've mistreated or neglected. We're going to close this service now with song. And I'm going to invite, uh, we have several elders who are going to come up to the front here and be prepared to pray with you or for you if you would desire that. Maybe something you'd like to share that they could pray for. Or or maybe if you just want to deal between yourself and God, simply come and kneel down and pour your heart out to God. But as we close in this final song, I invite you all to stand as the elders take their places. And during this song, feel free to come and speak your heart to God.